Good morning, church family. We're continuing our series through the book of Colossians today. So let's take our Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, looking at verses 6 and 7. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 984. I'll begin by reading through the text, and then I'll open in a word of prayer. Here's what God's Word says. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are so grateful for another Sunday morning to gather as a church family. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, would you open our hearts that we might be receptive to your word now. Help us to grasp the weight of these verses. Uh, Help us, Lord, to internalize them. Help us to apply them to our lives. Lord, might you be glorified in this time in your word and in each one of our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have arrived at Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, which are the key verses of this entire book. In fact, the message of the whole of Colossians is really contained in seed form in these two verses. And to aid our study of it this morning, I've broken the passage down into three simple affirmations. You will see these in the bulletin insert. The affirmations are, number one, that Jesus is Lord. Number two, the Christian life begins when we receive Jesus as Lord. And then number three, the whole of the Christian life consists in joyfully living under His Lordship. So we're going to look at each of these three affirmations in turn this morning, beginning with the first, Jesus is Lord. We see that truth embedded in the middle of verse 6. Now to say that Jesus is Lord means that He is the King, the Sovereign over all things. And He is so by right, not simply by conquest. You see, Jesus is eternal God. The Apostle Paul established that in chapter 1, verse 15, where he wrote, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So, in the person of Christ, we have the invisible God made visible. And this being is also the highest being in all the universe. In fact, Jesus himself taught this on numerous occasions. For example, in John 8, 58, he said, Before Abraham was, I am. They're invoking the covenant name of God from the Old Testament scriptures. And in John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one, meaning that He and God share one essence. And then John 14.9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, which means that all of the attributes of God are there in the person of Christ. So Jesus is Lord. He is Lord by right because He is eternal God come to earth in human flesh. But then second, He's also King by virtue of creation. Paul established this in chapter 1, verse 16. 
He said, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So Christ was the agent through which God created all things. This is described in in beautiful poetic form in Proverbs chapter 8. Listen to these words. It says, when God established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is eternal God. He is the agent through which God created all things. And third, he is also our king by right of redemption. Paul established this in chapter 1, verse 18. It says, He is the body, the head of the body, the church. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, making peace by the blood of the cross. So once we were all dead in our transgressions and sins, we were ruled by the prince of the power of the air. But then God, in His grace, sent His Son, secured our redemption, and then bought us back to Himself. Christ, through His death, paid the ransom price. Price that was no less precious than His own blood. And now we belong to Him. So friends, Jesus is Lord. This is a central theme in the book of Colossians, and it is a truth embedded in the sixth verse of the second chapter. And to affirm that Jesus is Lord is to also affirm that no one or no thing else is Lord. Not your parents, not your employer, not your government, and not even you. There is no king except King Jesus. And we must understand this. In fact, becoming a Christian requires that we understand this. As we see also here in verse 6, the Christian life actually begins when we receive Christ as Lord. It says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Notice that phrase. You received Christ Jesus the Lord. That's just Paul's way of saying, you Colossians have become Christians. They they received him as Lord. You know, that word translated receive here is a very loaded term. It means to accept or to welcome something into your life. In Luke chapter 1, it's used in the context of marriage. So uh, a groom receives his bride He welcomes her into his life, and the two form a new relationship. In Colossians 4, verse 17, it's used of accepting a ministry within the local church. So you you accept, you welcome the responsibilities that you bear as a church member, and you take them on. Most of the time, the Apostle Paul uses this word in reference to the body of teachings that he sought to impart to the churches. So to receive that was to welcome a tradition of sound doctrine into your life. We find that in 1 Corinthians 11 and 15, Galatians 1, 
1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Thessalonians 3, and elsewhere in the New Testament. But here, in Colossians 2, 6, the word is being used in a unique way. Here, it's about receiving Christ personally. So for the Apostle Paul, becoming a Christian was a a personal act whereby an individual welcomes Christ as Lord of their lives. Uh, This accords with Romans chapter 10, verse 9, which says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will become a Christian. This is really important, my friends, to understand that Jesus is Lord and no one else, and that becoming a Christian is an act of receiving Him as Lord, of accepting Him as the Lord of your life. This is incredibly important. See, what it means is that Christianity is not something that can be imposed upon you by others. For example, some people believe that they are Christians simply because when they were infants, their parents had them baptized. But you see, that wasn't a a personal act of, of faith. That was something that another did to them. You are not a Christian because somebody else performed an act on you. Second, we see here that Christianity isn't merely an intellectual endeavor either. I mean, yes, it involves the intellect. There are, there are truths about Christ that we must accept in order to be Christians. And yet Christianity doesn't end with just an acknowledgement of the facts as they relate to Christ. No, it's more than that. Third, Christianity is not only emotional. Again, yes, it involves the emotions. We ought to, to love what we, what we learn about Christ in the Scriptures. But if our Christianity goes no deeper than just having warm feelings about Christ, we are not yet Christians. You see, becoming a Christian is fundamentally an act of your will. See, you, you come to know who Christ is and what He has done for you. You accept those as true. And you love Christ for who he is and what he has done. But then the Christian life really begins when when you exercise your will, enabled by God's grace, but you exercise your will to say, yes, now I will receive him as my Lord. That's how you become a Christian. See, once he was not the king of your life, now he is. Once you didn't care about his law, now his law is your delight. Once you were indifferent to what pleased him, now pleasing him is your highest passion. This is the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian. So my friend, if uh, you are here today and your relationship to Christ is nothing more than an acknowledgement of the facts of history, or it's nothing more than than warm, fuzzy feelings about him, if it's nothing more than, than believing you are a Christian because your parent or someone else performed an act upon you, it's time for you to exercise your will and receive him as Lord. That's when you will truly become a Christian 
It's time to see Christ in all of His glory, fully God and fully man, agent of creation, King of this universe, King of you. And to joyfully accept that truth and then to to bow your will to His, eager to make Him the Lord of your life. That is what is most needful for you if you've not done so yet. You see, Jesus is Lord. Becoming a Christian is receiving Him as Lord. Then the follow-up question is, so then what do we do after that? After I've received Christ as my Lord, how now should I live my life? Well, this is answered in the next part of verse 6. It says to us that the whole of the Christian life consists in living under His Lordship. It says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So you Colossian Christians, in the original context, you have become believers. You have received Him as Lord. Now what should you do? You should walk in Him. You should live your whole lives every day under His Lordship. That's what Paul is saying. Living... The Christian life means working out the lordship of Christ in every department of your life. Now on to verse 7, where this truth is fleshed out. What does it look like exactly when we embrace Christ's lordship in all of life? Well, it looks like this. First, being rooted in Christ being rooted in Christ. Now, here on our church property, we are bordered by all of these beautiful, mature trees. What keeps those trees standing up year after year? You know, my son asked me that question one day when we were driving to school. He was looking out the window, saw all the beautiful trees, and he says, Daddy, how do those trees stand up? They're so tall. You guys know the answer. The trees stand firm because they have roots, and the roots go deep. And as the roots go down into the soil, they also spread out, and they grip the underlying soil. And this makes the tree very strong and stable. The trees can reach amazing heights because of the root system underneath. Well, in the same way... We Christians must learn to live our lives with deep roots in the gospel of Christ. You see, if your attachment to Christ is only superficial, you will be like a tree without roots. You will not stand when the storms come. If it is only a superficial um, attachment to Christ that you hold, as soon as the cultural winds begin to shift or as soon as the false doctrine begins to infiltrate the ranks, or as soon as the persecution comes, or the trials of life arise, you will collapse under the pressure of it all, because you're not well grounded in Christ. But friends, with roots that go down deep, you will not suffer such a fate. You will stand up under all of the pressures. So then how do we grow these 
deep roots. We grow them this way, first by seeking constant communion with God through Scripture intake and prayer. See, through Scripture intake, we are hearing the words of God for us. And in prayer, we are communicating our godly desires to Him. And by maintaining a a lifestyle of reading the words of God and then communicating back to God in prayer, we are forging an ever tighter bond with Christ. Okay, we are sinking those roots deeper down into the soil. We need to get to the point where our identities are entirely wrapped up in Christ so that the idea of of Altering our Christian identity would be about as easy for us as altering our DNA code. In other words, impossible. We know Christ. We love Christ. We are confident that He knows and loves us. We have a a vital relationship with Him through intake of His Word and prayers to Him. It's become our identity. This is how the roots begin to form. And then it's also done by forging bonds with the members of our local church until we have gained there an unshakable sense of belonging. We must find a local church, formalize our association with that church, and then dig into the the life of that church. We need to be able to say, look, this is my place. These are my people. And to have the opportunity to minister to them and to receive their ministry. And in forming those strong church bonds, again, the roots are being sunk down deep and the roots are fanning out and gripping hold of the gospel of Christ and it makes us much harder to move. Also, we can build those roots by looking at the people who are trying to entice us away from Christ. By asking ourselves, are their lives really that attractive? Not meaning to be unkind, but just trying to be objective. Is there something more attractive on that side? When the woke mob entices you and you look at the features of the wokers, is there anything over there that you really find desirable? When people who are enslaved by their own passions call you to join their side, is there really anything that attractive to you about being enslaved by your own glands? Would you not rather be under the kingship of Christ? See, this is how we form roots. Scripture intake, prayer, strong bonds with a local church family, taking an objective look at the alternatives to following Christ and finding that they are empty. When you do those things, you will become so grounded in Christ that your very identity will be wrapped up in His. And it will be wrapped up in His church. And you will be firm and immovable in your Christian commitment As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How? By being rooted in Christ. 
But then secondly, we see in verse 7, by being built up in Christ. Now here, the Apostle Paul is changing metaphors. He's gone from looking at trees to now looking at buildings. Now we know what happens when a building is not constructed properly. In fact, just this summer, we watched in horror as that condominium complex in Miami came crashing to the ground. Twelve stories tall, 134 units came crashing right to the ground. How did that happen? Well, on June 27th, just three days after the collapse, the New York Times ran an article uh, sharing their, their preliminary findings The article is entitled, Possible Failure Points Emerge as Miami Area Building Collapses. Here's what the article says in part. Quote, the investigation into what may be the deadliest accidental building collapse in American history has just begun, but experts who have examined video footage of the disaster outside Miami are focusing on a spot in the lowest part of the condominium complex possibly in or below the underground parking garage. In other words, they're looking at the foundation of the building as the cause for the collapse. It goes on. Called progressive collapse, the gradual spread of failures could have occurred for a variety of reasons, including design flaws or the less robust construction allowed uh, under the building codes of four decades ago when the complex was built. But that progression could not have occurred without some critical first failure. And the close inspections of a grainy surveillance video that emerged in the initial hours after the disaster have given the first hints of where that might have been. Quote, it does appear to start either at or very near the bottom of the structure, said Donald O. Dusenberry, a consulting engineer who has investigated many structural collapses. So why did that 12-story building come crashing down? Because there was something wrong with the foundation. And when that is wrong, the whole building gets compromised. You see, if the foundation is weak, the whole superstructure will eventually collapse. Even if the foundation is good, but you have not built the superstructure squarely upon the foundation, it is going to collapse. Friends, what's true of buildings is also true of people, even of entire societies. If you build your life or your society on a weak foundation, your life and your society will not be sustainable. Or if you have a good, solid foundation, but you are not squarely set upon it, then you are not going to be able to sustain it. This is what we've been witnessing in America for the last hundred years. Our society has been trying foundation after foundation, looking for something upon which to build a civilization. We've tried the philosophy of modernism. We've tried postmodernism. Today we're trying wokeism. None of it works because none of it is solid. Many lives are being built on faulty foundations. They've embraced bankrupt philosophies, and it's leading to disastrous life outcomes. My friends, the gospel of Christ is the only sure foundation to build a life upon. It's the only one. It's the only thing to build a society upon. It's the only foundation that leads to flourishing 
in life and society. And if we would be strong and immovable people, then we must build our lives upon Christ, meaning laying Christ as the foundation of our lives. His life, His person, His teaching, that becomes the foundation of our lives. And then we must build squarely upon that all the departments of our life, right on up through, not one piece of it placed off-center. This means reading the teachings of Christ, hearing them expounded upon, And then it means implementing Christ's teachings and trusting that the wisdom of his teachings are just that. They are wisdom, and they are the best for you. And it is trusting Christ, even when you can't fully understand why he says the things that he says. Like in Matthew 5, verse 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You might read that and think, makes no sense. The meek will inherit the earth. It seems to me like the proud are the ones inheriting the earth. But we trust the wisdom of Christ. And so we say, I will be meek. Or how about Matthew 5.10? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We might read that and think, Blessed are the persecuted. The persecuted are wiped out. How can they ever inherit a kingdom? Well, we trust Christ. We know who he is. We trust him. And so we say, I will stand for righteousness. And I will accept persecution if it comes, because he says that if I do, the kingdom is mine for the taking. Or how about Matthew 23, verse 12? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Seems like the people who are constantly promoting themselves would be the ones exalted. The ones constantly behaving in a humble manner, they would be the ones that history forgets. But Jesus says, no, blessed are the humble They will be exalted. And so we say, okay, Jesus, I don't understand this paradox, but I will trust you. So I will be humble, and I will wait for you to exalt me in your time. See, this is what it means to be built upon Christ. His person, his teachings, they form the bedrock of your life. Everything is built upon it. Even when you don't understand it, you still implement it in your life, trusting what he says will be true. And then we come to the next statement here in verse 7. It says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. Now, this third participle is actually the result of the prior two. Paul is saying, So walk in step with Christ. That means be rooted in Christ, be built up in Christ. And the result, if you do these things, is you'll be well established in the faith that you were taught. These things, scripture intake and prayer, belonging to a local church, having an objective view of reality when it comes to those other philosophies that you could build your life upon, 
when it comes to your commitment to implementing the teachings of Christ, when you do all of these things together, they start to act like reinforcements for you. They, they root you into the ground, they lay you on a firm foundation, they build you up in a sound manner so that you become firmly established in the faith. These things are reinforcements. Now, I began our series on the book of Colossians with the story about the Notre Dame Cathedral fire in Paris. You guys remember the images of that fire. You know, that fire raged for hours and hours before they could put it out. But when the fire was done, it's the most amazing thing. The, The roof and the spire were lost. But did you notice all the walls stood and the bell tower still stood? Now, how could a fire... That, that destructive, I mean, that massive, how could that rage for hours in a building and for the walls and the tower still to hold? Well, it's because the Notre Dame Cathedral had a really good foundation, and it's because the walls were built with really good materials, but then it's also because of another structural device on that cathedral, called the flying buttress. You guys have probably seen it. Maybe you didn't even know that's what it was, but have you looked at the outside pictures of the Notre Dame Cathedral and seen these like stone arches? They they come out of the ground and then they come up against the outside walls of the church building. There's dozens of them, just these archways constantly coming from the ground, touching the outer walls of the building. Those are the flying buttresses. And they're designed to be reinforcements on the structure. You see, the walls stood because the walls were on a good foundation and they were reinforced well. Well, my friends, when we are in constant communion with God and we are rooting our identity in Christ, and we're cultivating that sense of belonging to a local church, and we're working to bring Christ's lordship to bear on every department of life, no part of life being left out. It's like we're adding these buttresses to our faith. We are reinforcing our faith, and we will stand in the day of trouble. My friend, are you experiencing a crisis of faith right now? Could it perhaps be so because you are neglecting some of the things that would reinforce your faith? Could that crisis of faith be be occurring right now because you've become inconsistent in your Bible intake? Could it be that you are not praying to God on a consistent basis? Could it be that there are aspects of our Lord's teachings that you are struggling to accept? And so you are saying to yourself, okay, Christ can be Lord here and here and here, but I don't want him to be Lord there. Not not my finances. My finances are mine. He doesn't get to be Lord of that. Or my, my dating life, okay? I choose my own, 
boyfriend or girlfriend. I choose how this relationship will proceed. I will not listen to Christ on this. Or pick any department of life you wish. Are there areas of life where you have resisted the lordship of Christ? My friend, this might be a contributing factor to the crisis that you now find yourself in, which means that it can also be remedied by using these reinforcements. Re-engage with God. Commune with Him every day. Take advantage of, of being in a church family. Don't miss out on that opportunity. Go ahead and trust Christ. Obey his teachings and see if it isn't the best for you. And look how Paul ends here. He says, Walk in him, being rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, meaning accepting the faith of Christ and the apostles, not accepting the false doctrines of, of those other peddlers of teachings. And then he ends with these words, abounding in thanksgiving. Joyful gratitude is the natural, the natural product of a life built on Christ. When you realize all that Christ was willing to do to secure your spiritual life, I mean, to, to leave the, the glories of heaven, take on a, a human nature to be subjected to the death of the cross. He was willing to do that for you. When you realize all that you have now received because of the life he's given you, you think of, of all that you have been freed from and all that you have, have now been given in Christ. When you begin experiencing all the blessings that come when your life is built on a solid foundation, you know what happens? All doubt and fear and anger and discontent just melt away. We're left with nothing but happy contentment. Gratefulness is the natural byproduct of knowing and loving and following Christ. But you know, it's also something we've got to fight for. This world is constantly trying to shake our joy. Watch the evening news one night and you will struggle to maintain joy. Something to fight for. We fight for it by constantly coming back to Christ, our root and our foundation. My friends, in conclusion here, what kind of person do you want to be? What kind of person do you want to be? Do you want to be like a tree without roots or like a building without a foundation? If so, then go ahead and neglect the spiritual disciplines. Start buying into the empty philosophies of this world. That's the kind of person you will become. But do you want to be firm and immovable, settled on Christ, free of fear and abounding in gratitude? then accept this truth that Jesus is Lord and then walk in step with it. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this remarkable passage from the book of Colossians, truly a, a summary of the whole book in, in condensed form. 
Lord, help us to believe that your Son is the Lord. Help us, Lord, to welcome his Lordship into our lives. Help us to become rooted in him. Help us to build our lives up in him. Knowing, Lord, that doing so will make us firmly established in sound doctrine, and it will also cause us to overflow with joy. Lord, those are the, this is the kind of a person that we want to be. So help us, Lord, in your grace. Help us to follow these words. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.